It is a great pleasure to return to Gresham College for what will be my third Gresham Lecture in seven years. My goal today is to help demystify the concept of reserve currency, or rather anchor currency, especially as it relates to globalization, geopolitics, and the economic competition between nation-states. As much of what is circulating in the blockosphere these days, and even in respectable news outlets, is rank nonsense. Confusion abounds, even amongst the well-read and well-educated. Many people are unsure if the establishment of the pound sterling as a reserve currency was a cause or a consequence of Britain's putative position as global hegemon in the 19th century, or if the ascendancy of the dollar in the 20th century was a cause or consequence of America's hegemonic position after World War II, and now if China's rising economic might will result in the renminbi eclipsing the dollar in the currency baskets of leading central banks. As the cartoon in slide one illustrates, many people envision this as a kind of ball game in which one side wins and the other side loses. That's not the case at all. Now, some of what you can read online on this subject is straightforwardly xenophobic. The adherents, for instance, of the QAnon conspiracy in the United States appear to have convinced themselves of a delusional fantasy that COVID-19 was a plot by the Chinese government to replace the dollar with the renminbi as the world's reserve currency if Trump loses the U.S. elections. But others are just unsure of what a reserve currency is, who decides what is or is not one, and why it matters. It is my belief that we have a collective responsibility, a civic duty even, to make sure that we understand the rough contours of the international monetary system, so as not to be taken in by spurious claims, and in order to understand why the rather technical question, properly one of maths and money, the subject of the series, of what constitutes a reserve currency, has been hijacked by those with nationalist agendas and preoccupations. Now, if Remimbi internationalization is the subject of lowbrow conspiracy theories in the United States, currency nationalism takes on a different hue in the United Kingdom. From 1973 to 2019, Britain was a member of the European Union, initially as a member of the European communities, but we were never a member of the Eurozone. Many people have forgotten why in the wake of Brexit, but in reality, we were on course to adopt the Euro when we joined the European exchange rate mechanism in October of 1990. Membership was short-lived as Britain was forced to exit the ERM after the Black Wednesday crash of 16 September 1992, when the Bank of England proved unable to defend the pound against currency speculators. This confirmed the wisdom of the opt-out clause Britain had negotiated before signing the Maastricht Treaty. Yet the idea of joining the euro, which was briefly mooted again under Gordon Brown's government in the wake of the collapse of sterling again during the global financial crisis, reinvigorated a bugbear for those who wanted Britain to leave the European Union altogether. Britishness found itself bound up in keeping the pound sterling, restoring blue passports, and tougher immigration controls without much thought or awareness of whether or not countries have been able to achieve these things within the European framework. In the popular press, there is a tendency to conflate reserve currencies with currency unions or currency blocks. If a currency union is sufficiently large, central banks will necessarily tend to hold the currency in their reserves. This is also true if an individual national economy is sufficiently large. This is the view of reserve currencies illustrated by the cartoon in slide two. Now, leaving aside the question of what it means to be invited to join the table, which we'll return to later, 
Central bank holdings of euros have steadily increased in the last two decades. By the same token, the existence of the sterling area, or sterling block, from 1931 to 1972, contributed to the pound sterling remaining reserve currency, albeit not the reserve currency, for longer than it might have done otherwise. Given the fever pitch of British politics in 2020, perhaps it is not surprising that people ascribe a high prestige value to retaining a national currency, and might recall with fondness other, current, other countries' use of one's own currency, and might well assume that every country aspires to having one's own national currency become the dominant reserve currency, even if such a status might not be in a given country's best interest. Post-Brexit, currency nationalism is not just a feature of popular politics. Technocrats could also fall prey to it, and there have been accusations on both sides as Britain and the EU negotiate the place of London as a major financial center post-Brexit. So my lecture today aims to clarify these issues for you by explaining the competing macroeconomic theories of reserve currencies and to tell you how in practice central banks decide which currencies to hold in their reserves, as well as to outline the advantages and disadvantages of reserve currency status. Then I will sketch the history of reserve currencies in order to underscore the contingent and accidental, as well as path-dependent and deterministic elements of the story. After that, I will discuss the relationships between currency holdings and economic globalization and geopolitics, which amounts really to thinking about which arrangement, unipolar with a single hegemon or superpower, bipolar with two superpowers, or multipolar with several significant alignments of major powers, produces the most stable international economic and monetary order. And finally, I will examine likely future scenarios, informed by considerations of the digitalization of money, which you've heard about in Andrew Lewis Pyle's lecture, and the geopolitical horizon, especially as it is informed by major global challenges such as climate change and biodiversity loss. Before we return to the economic theory of reserve currencies as such, it is perhaps worth reviewing the three uses of money. Many economic writers have expounded this view, and perhaps some in the audience may remember that Adam Smith explained in The Wealth of Nations that money simultaneously serves as a unit of account, a store of value, and a medium of exchange. An American dollar is clearly a unit of account, as globally many goods are priced in dollars. Think of petrodollars, for example. It is also a medium of exchange, as banks hold dollars to settle trade invoices and as a store of value, particularly for countries with runaway inflationary fears. In 18th century Britain, pounds, shillings, pence were the units of account, but we knew most transactions happened on credit, particularly trade credit, which was settled perhaps twice per year. Large transactions were handled by promissory notes and bills of exchange. Shop credit was also very common, and if people carried coins, there were most often copper farthings, or perhaps gold guineas, half guineas, and even quarter guineas. But one effect of Newton's decision to fix the value of a guinea at 21 shillings in 1717 was that quite a lot of the silver coin in the kingdom was melted down and disguised to Spanish bullion for export abroad. This, in effect, put Britain on the gold standard, and indeed, gold acted as a store of value in the 18th century. Now, the term reserve currency or anchor currency, if other currencies are pegged to it, 
really just refers to any foreign currency that central banks or monetary authorities or other official institutions hold in their foreign exchange reserves. In practice, foreign exchange reserves are not just banknotes, but also include government bonds, treasury bills and notes, that is, government securities denominated in sterling, dollars, euro, renminbi, etc. Foreign exchange reserves vary a lot by country. Famously, China holds 3.1.42 trillion, nearly pi trillion dollars, if dollar is used as the unit of account, in foreign exchange reserves. Japan, just under half that, and Switzerland, just under a third, at 929 billion. The United States holds a paltry 140 billion, while the UK holds about $183 billion. Of those countries, Switzerland is the only one that still holds a significant percentage of its foreign reserves, um, just over 40% in gold, which is a legal requirement in that country. There are many reasons that central banks hold foreign exchange reserves, foreign currency reserves, and in differing amounts, and those reasons have changed over time. In 2020, foreign exchange reserves are not equal to a country's treasure, though many people may persist of thinking of it that way. But think about it this way. If the dollar is the most common reserve currency, then the United States is not necessarily going to need to hold large foreign currency reserves, whereas the central banks of other countries with large economies like China, whose currencies do not heavily feature in the foreign exchange reserves of other countries, will need to do so in order to be able to convert them at need. Which leads me to the next point. When we say that the dollar is the main global reserve currency, we do not mean that the dollar is the only one. Globally, in 2020, the dollar accounts for about 60% of the total allocated reserves, followed by the euro, which is about 20% of the total, with the Japanese yuan at 6% of the total, and the British pound at 4.5%, Japanese yen rather, at 6% of the total, and the British pound at 4.5%. The renminbi, the Chinese yuan, by contrast, is around 2% of the foreign exchange reserves held by central banks and other official institutions, hardly at present a threat to dollar supremacy. Now, this is double what it was in 2016, but 1% to 2% is still far from a significant portion of the total. Now, why do central banks hold foreign exchange reserves? Before the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement in the 1970s, Outside the Soviet bloc, exchange rates were fixed, pegged to the value of the dollar, which was pegged in turn to the value of gold. Under such a system, central banks needed foreign exchange reserves to maintain the exchange rate of domestic currency by ensuring that they had the ability to buy it if necessary. For countries in the sterling bloc, their currency was pegged to the pound sterling and so they had to maintain large sterling balances in order to defend their currency pegs. This was no longer needed after the collapse of Bretton Woods, but many sterling area countries, especially those who were also members of the Commonwealth and had significant trading ties to the United Kingdom, continued to use sterling. One big advantage of the sterling area is that membership allowed its members to settle payments in sterling without having to worry about foreign exchange controls, which were very common in the post-World War II period. Over time, in part spurred by Britain's membership in the EEC, Commonwealth countries that needed currency pegs in an area of floating exchange rates most frequently switched to the dollar. Now, the Eurozone is a monetary union that created a currency area. 
Before the establishment of the euro, Deutsche marks, German marks, and French francs were also held in significant quantities by central banks. So it is not surprising that a fifth of the foreign exchange reserves today are held in euros. Although I will spare you a digression on this subject, one feature of currency unions is that they are not just monetary, but they are also economic phenomenon, and they tend to transform the economic interdependencies within and across the agricultural and industrial sectors of their constituent members. Those of you who are interested to learn more might enjoy my work with my colleagues Roberto Scazzieri and Ivano Cardinale on the political economy of the Eurozone. For a long time, economists assumed that one currency would have to dominate the global economy as a reserve currency because of what economists call network externalities, or rather network effects, which are the benefits in terms of efficiency and reduced transaction costs of everyone using the same unit of account in trade invoicing and in the denomination of foreign debt. For instance, another kind of network effect might be the use of the metric system, which became more valuable as more people adopted it. And now, of course, imperial measurements, which are limited to the United States and to some extent the United Kingdom, are far less useful. At a particular point in the past, that is for the half century after World War II, this might well have been the case. There may have been significant network externalities, but as Barry Eichengreen has argued forcibly in his book, Globalizing Capital in 2019, and then exorbitant privilege in 2011, multipolar arrangements have been much more the rule than the exception. The remaining theoretical issue to clarify for you is whether or not being the dominant reserve currency is a good thing for the country in question. Is it, as the French thought of the American position in the post-war period, a matter of exorbitant privilege? Although the concept was coined by the French in the 1960s, and famously is often misattributed to Charles de Gaulle, many other observers have similar feelings today. On a certain level, this seems obvious. The United States appears to be in the enviable position of issuing the world's most important reserve currency. The United States borrows in dollars, and central banks need to hold dollar assets, so they appear to be willing to buy a nearly unlimited quantity of U.S. government debt. As Eichen Green in 2011 succinctly put it, printing $100 bills takes only a few cents, but foreigners have to buy dollars with hard-earned cash. This is called signage, and the income involved appears to be jaw-dropping to many observers. That said, there are also disadvantages to being a dominant reserve currency, one that explains to a very large extent the deindustrialization of the heartlands of the United States and the Midlands of the United Kingdom. Demand for dollars or pounds to hold as reserve assets drives up exchange rates, which makes exports, particularly manufactured goods, but also agricultural products, more expensive to those who import them. This makes a country's agriculture and manufacturing base far less competitive. In short, this exorbitant privilege may well be that for state actors who earn signage and may even make households better off in the short term as they were able to consume cheaply to buy iPhones or laptops from abroad, but at the risk of making export-oriented firms worse off, thereby laying people off and causing high levels of unemployment, for instance, in parts of the Midlands, 
and with the consequences of damaging international competitiveness, which nearly killed off the American car industry, which can harm the life chances of future generations, even as large-scale public borrowing can also result in austerity and higher interest rates down the line. Such hollowing out of the economy can have dire political consequences, as we have seen with the rise of Trump in the United States. The rest of the world has not been cheating America, but this is the price paid for the exorbitant privilege of collecting signage and being able to borrow um, staggering amounts of money and to issue staggering quantities of government securities, largely spent on the military, without having to make attendant investments in improving the country's economic productivity or increasing the country's tax take. Now, there might well have been a time following James McDonald's logic in When Globalization Fails, the rise and fall of Pax Americana in 2015, when the world might well have been willing to tolerate this arrangement and to pay that signage as the price of enjoying a benevolent global hegemon. But the consensus that the U.S. is benevolent or hegemon is rapidly eroding, giving the shifting geopolitical sands. Reserve currencies, in the technical sense, date from the mid-19th century, when central banks and other official institutions began to take shape. The Bank of England, for example, was not nationalized until after World War II, but Bagahoe's lender of last resort doctrine appeared in the 1870s, on the eve of the first era of financial globalization. Before there were reserve currencies, there were currencies that were widely accepted internationally for payment of claims. The Roman denarii is often cited as the first recognizable one, and the Froim coin hoard founded in 2010 of Roman coins in Britain attests to its reach, where it's clear that there are coins taken from all over Western Europe and beyond. But claims can be made for the Greek drachma, and perhaps even earlier for Mesopotamian empires. Our own pound shillings pence, pre-decimal currency, was introduced by Charlemagne, and though rendered differently in different languages, was the unit of account in Europe until decimalization. Determining the actual composition of gold and silver coins, the percentage of base alloy, or base metal or alloy, was complicated, as Professor Norman Briggs's lecture has demonstrated vividly. Getting it wrong, as Newton did in 1717, had, as we have seen, enormous consequences, in that it shifted Britain from a silver to a gold standard in the 18th century. Dutch guilders, which were themselves a gold coin in this period, were the most common currency used in trade invoicing in Europe, and only gradually gave way to the pound sterling with the growth of international capital markets in the 19th century. Britain was unusual in the 19th century for being on the gold standard. Many European countries maintained a bimetallic standard. The dominance of the gold standard was not a foregone conclusion. Bimetallism, the maintenance of gold and silver standards, simultaneously was still an option. And the Latin Monetary Union was an attempt to do just that by creating a currency area in which member states would freely exchange both gold and silver coins based on a fixed ratio of gold of 15.5 to 1, as determined by the French franc. The Latin Monetary Union was established by treaty in 1865, and members were added over time. There were a number of motivations for the Latin Monetary Union, particularly for smaller states who wanted to capture network externalities and trade, 
The principal among them was Napoleon III's ambition to internationalize the Franc, on par with Sterling. Although the LMU survived Napoleon III's downfall after the Franco-Prussian War, the bimetallic standard fell victim to the volatility of relative gold and silver prices in the fourth quarter of the 19th century. Even the Latin Monetary Union migrated to the gold standard eventually, and it persisted until the late 1920s, though it was largely a dead letter after the First World War, even as the percentage of foreign exchange reserves held in French francs nearly doubled from 16% to 31% from 1899 to 1913. But by 1929, the portion of French francs had fallen to single digits, whereas the dollar had grown from single digits to over half of um, central bank currency holdings as a result of World War I. It is precisely that rapid change that has made many commentators imagine that something similar could happen with dollar and the renminbi, although there are very good reasons to think that unlikely. Now remember that gold ratio from Norman Biggs' talk. Even today, geologists believe that the ratio of gold to silver in the ground is about 19 to 1, yet gold is far more valuable relative to silver than that. The gold ratio is a matter of intense interest to market commentators today, because many see rising gold ratios as prefiguring economic crises and even depressions, because investors tend to flee to gold as a safe haven asset. This also applies to a limited extent to fluctuations in the, in the exchange rate for Swiss francs, which are backed, partially backed by gold. Certainly the second and third quarters of 2020 would tend to support this view as the gold ratio rose rapidly during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. The other point to make, as Barry Eichengreen has repeatedly done, is that the Bretton Woods Agreement is rather unusual in effectively establishing a global reserve currency by international agreement, that is, by enshrining dollar convertibility in the same treaties that created the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. The Bretton Woods Agreement required that central banks maintain dollar reserves adequate to support its own currency, that a central bank maintain dollar reserves adequate to support its own currency in foreign exchange markets. The United States, in turn, was required to remain maintain gold convertibility, famously in Fort Knox. In truth, after World War II, the United States was the, the only country in a position to perform this role, given the devastation of Europe. And the one thing the Allies had learned from both world wars, from World War I and World War II, was the huge cost of doing nothing. The so-called economic consequences of the peace, in the words of John Maynard Keynes. Over time, dollar hegemony became self-reinforcing, or path-dependent, such that Nixon's decision to close the gold window in 1972 did not materially affect the dollar status as a reserve currency, although it did fundamentally alter the international currency monetary regime. In the post-Bretton Woods era of floating exchange rates, most countries do not need to maintain foreign exchange reserves in order to maintain pegs to other currencies. Though some currencies today in emerging markets are pegged to the dollar or to the euro to protect against inflation and to, to gain access to, to trading areas. But it is a well-known paradox that the global value of foreign exchange reserves has grown steadily since the mid-1970s, despite the fact that 
these reserves are not needed to maintain convertibility. There are a number of reasons for this, but principally macroeconomists theorize that it is because credit rating agencies use reserve ratios to evaluate sovereign credit risk. Foreign exchange reserves are also viewed as prudent measures to stabilize the national economy and to avert a balance of payments crisis in both current accounts and financial accounts. This was especially true after the great financial crisis, such that central banks are expected to hold foreign currency reserves equal to a country's annual foreign liabilities and also to hold reserves equal to a quarter, that is three months, worth of imports. Now these are heuristics, the rules of thumb, which have become embedded in the international monetary system, again, often in response to crises. They're not matters of law. But the existence of these heuristics has encouraged central banks to diversify their foreign exchange holdings, which is why the basket of foreign currencies today is so much larger than it was in the past. Of course, these heuristics are not economic laws either, but they're conventions determined by international organizations and international agreements. And the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the Bank of International Settlements were also established by Bretton Woods. Reserve currencies are related to geopolitics, but not in the way that conspiracy theorists often imagine. Bretton Woods was not just about deciding the reserve currency. The key element of the Bretton Woods system was fixed exchange rates, where central banks were committed to maintain exchange rates within preset bounds. This created a trilemma, or impossible trinity, later credited to John Marcus Fleming and Robert Mundell in the early 1960s. The trilemma states that it is impossible to have fixed exchange rates, free capital flows, and sovereign monetary policy at the same time. Any two of these positions are possible, but not all three. In the immediate post-war period, the solution for most countries was to impose capital controls, which is why, as we've said, the sterling bloc was so useful to its members. The Soviet bloc notoriously had strict capital controls, with foreign exchange reserves concentrated in the USSR for most of the Cold War period. Hence, many of the members of the Soviet bloc had soft currencies that could not be exchanged abroad. With the globalization of international capital markets since the end of the Cold War, capital controls have largely fallen out of fashion, though, although China still uses them. One very significant reason why China is in no rush to internationalize the renminbi to the point of dominating or overtaking the dollar as a reserve currency is the desire to retain capital controls both to guard against capital flight on the one hand and hot money on the other. Now, what is hot money? You hear about it all the time. And why is it a problem? Hot money refers to speculative flows that take advantage of interest rate differentials in government securities or in exchange rate shifts. They can be very destabilizing, these flows, particularly for a country experiencing both financial deepening, that is the growth and the depth and thus liquidity of domestic capital markets, and financial opening, the gradual opening of its financial markets to international investors. This cartoon shows Chinese fears of hot money from the West in the wake of quantitative easing. It is very easy to imagine that China will become even more fearful as unconventional monetary policy becomes widespread again in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, some commentators have seen the period from 2016 to 2020 
with the election of Donald Trump and with Brexit, and also with the election of many right-wing nationalist parties in Europe and the Americas, is heralding a kind of pushback against globalization. There is the sense in many quarters of declining American influence, which has increased given America's apparent inability to coordinate an effective response to the coronavirus pandemic, and even more alarmingly, given the withdrawal of the United States from various international agreements, including the Paris Agreements on Climate Change, the World Health Organization, and when Trump feels like threatening it, possible withdrawal from NATO or the UN. Trump's rather incoherent economic position, as translated into his foreign policy, has primarily involved him airing the grievance that American competitiveness has been sapped by foreign nations who have lured away manufacturing capacity. But to the extent that American manufacturing has moved abroad, it is largely because the dollar's role as a reserve currency has meant that it is chronically overvalued. Now, China also relies on exports to global trading partners, as domestic markets are growing slowly as poverty alleviation is achieved. So what does China want? Access to strategic resources is certainly part of it, and the renminbi has become increasingly important in certain markets. For instance, since 2015, offshore renminbi can be used as cash collateral on the London Metals Exchange, and in 2018, the LME announced it would launch one-denominated futures contracts. China has also tried to increase the share, the global share of renminbi-denominated trade through global swap agreements, swap lines, and loan packages made available through the One Belt, One Road initiative, bilateral swap agreements with countries like Pakistan that have chronic trade deficits with China can be very useful, especially to countries with liquidity constraints or with the inability to access IMF funding, as most recently with Turkey in June 2020 of this year. These agreements as yet are limited, however, and in any case not included in the official figures of foreign exchange reserves. Moreover, they suffer from adverse selection. The countries willing to enter swap agreements with China are not necessarily those with whom China would wish to enter swap agreements. In any case, despite the odd proposal for wholesale monetary reform, there is little reason to think that there is a global appetite for radical change. When the new IMF director, Kristalina Georgieva, speaks, as she did last week, of a new Bretton Woods moment, her focus was not on altering international monetary arrangements, but rather on helping to affect a sustainable, inclusive recovery from the pandemic. Significant changes to the architecture of the international monetary system are, in fact, much more likely to come from a different direction entirely, as innovations in financial technology or fintech, such as those you, you heard described by Andrew Lewis Pye's lecture, become more and more commonplace. Looking ahead, there are two important strands of the story to pick up. First, the importance of geopolitics, and second, the role of technology. With respect to the first, as I have suggested, China has neither the appetite nor the financial institutions to assume position as a global hegemon anytime soon. But China is beginning to lead the way in another area, in the low carbon transition, with the commitment to achieving net zero by 2060, Deep decarbonization will fundamentally transform energy, transport, buildings, agriculture, to name but the most obvious sectors of the economy, and will have knock-on consequences for many more. 
The requirements of decarbonization will create new species of financial assets in the form of climate and carbon loans, swap agreements, tradable put options for carbon and methane removal, futures contracts for technological carbon dioxide removal, among others. It is not inconceivable that some types of carbon credits could, over time, be monetized. But that is still some distance away, though it is part of our story. Far more immediate is the probable effect of the digitalization of currency and the advent of the blockchain. There are some characteristics of the blockchain that make it particularly suitable to some of the purposes for which central banks hold foreign currency reserves. Before getting into this argument in detail, we should briefly review the blockchain to remind us of what it does. As you can see from slide 24, blockchains have essentially four features. First, blockchains are a form of distributed ledger technology, or really a kind of private database. Two, that means that distributed ledger technologies, blockchains, are a system for storing transactional ledgers in a distributed manner, thus enabling digitally supervised markets to operate without a central clearing authority. Three, they are also smart contracts permitting self-verification and hence are useful in a range of fields outside finance. Four, they operate by three principles. They are decentralized, transparent, and immutable. As the previous lecture explored in detail, explored all of this in detail, I will not illustrate their functioning, but simply note that there are three main kinds of blockchain technology, which have a range of different uses. Public blockchains, like the Bitcoin or Ethereum blockchains, have the virtue of being fully decentralized and tamper-resistant, and they use a token, which is usually mined, albeit in ways that are not very sustainable. Private blockchains are more decentralized in that you need permission to join the network, and they are visible only to those in the network. These applications are growing rapidly in that they can be used to form a consortium, say for construction supply chains, or for central bank clearing. And finally, hybrid blockchains are private but can export to public blockchains, which is a new area for development. There are also different kinds of protocols. Some are more suitable than others to public or private blockchains. The proof-of-work protocol, made famous by Bitcoin, involves energy-intensive calculations to mine the coins and is unlikely to pr pr prove a durable model as a result. The proof-of-stake protocol is an alternative, and Ethereum, which is increasingly used by bulge bracket banks in swap markets, is in the process of switching proof-of-work to proof-of-stake. Proof-of-space and proof-of-authority protocols are potential alternatives, and there are also digital crypto cryptocurrencies, such as those created by Ripple Labs and Stellar Labs, which use an iterative consensus ledger that is much less energy-intensive. A quick recap of the major competitors can be seen in the following slide. As yet, it is unclear which of these will win out, but you have heard some speculations in the previous lecture. For now, I think it is enough to point out that the energy utilization of Bitcoin is comfortably, comfortably located between that of Switzerland and the Czech Republic. So movement away from proof of work is inevitable if cryptocurrencies are to survive in a world that is increasingly concerned about sustainability. Which brings us to the question of how digitalization of money will affect central banking. First, as Marcus Brunemeyer, Harold James, and Jean-Pierre Landau have recently argued in 2019, one effect will be to unbundle and then rebundle those three functions of money, unit of account, store of value, and medium of exchange.
and that will cause greater competition among currencies. They also reason that this will lead to the creation of digital currency areas, which link currencies to digital networks rather than countries, perhaps Facebook or WeChat. This may also lead to competition between public money, that is official currencies issued by governments, and private money, which is token money issued by Amazon or Alibaba or Facebook. And that will cause central banks in turn to issue their own digital currencies to protect their monetary sovereignty. One of the chief motivators for the founder of Bitcoin, as it happens, was his disapproval of fiat currency, hence the elaborate proof-of-work protocol that was meant to emulate the mining of precious metals in the physical world. Most private money these days on digital platforms are convertible to public monies, but that might not continue indefinitely. In fact, it seems very likely that at some stage, those who work for the underlying firms or are part of those firms' supply chains will be able to elect to receive a portion of their wages and salaries in these private monies. Perhaps some may already do so. The unbundling and rebundling of the functions of money may, according to these authors, lead to the development of fierce competition and payment platforms, which will become geographically detached. Now, this is already true to a degree with Visa, MasterCard, and American Express, but these should have a much broader scope than just their payment functions, including perhaps social networks and portfolio management. One option these authors consider is the development of a digital synthetic currency backed by a basket of official currencies. One such proposal is the Libra, which has been floated by Facebook. I want to take, I want to go a step further and suggest another possibility. If central banks and other official institutions are indeed committed to achieving carbon neutrality, that carbon credit blockchains may represent a significant untapped potential. Work on this has already begun in reference to the Paris Agreement's ambitions to create a carbon market mechanism that will overcome problems with verification and compliance that plague existing carbon markets. Now, what would this mean in practice? First, one of the attractions of the gold standard was the notion that gold is a precious metal, which, at least until fairly recently, had limited industrial uses, but was nevertheless very desirable. As such, it made an excellent store of value. But mining gold, particularly cyanide leaching of low-grade ores, which is done today, is terribly toxic to the environment. What the 21st century needs is environmental remediation and repair, not just of toxic mining sites, but in almost every area. Carbon offsets are one fairly low-tech and perhaps not very permanent solution to carbon dioxide emissions, and that afforestation and reforestation creates natural carbon sinks which remove carbon from the atmosphere. There are also technological forms of carbon capture and carbon storage, most of which operate presently at point sources of carbon emissions, such as chemical and petrochemical factories, gas-fired power plants, and mining operations. Direct air capture, though thermodynamically not very sensible at the moment, unless there is a clean energy source, would remove carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere. With clean energy, these technologies would potentially counter the effects of carbon emissions on global warming and ocean acidification, which along with biodiversity loss are among the most dangerous threats to our human societies. Other technologies are also possible, and as I warned in my last Gresham lecture, are likely to be targets of financial speculation, perhaps even dangerous speculative bubbles. It is possible, however, for central banks to get ahead of this train, as they say, and to think about ways of leveraging the power of consensus blockchains to implement a safe, 
secure, effective, transparent, and reliable market and carbon offsets, both of short time horizon and of the longer dated variety. All human societies have a vested interest in combating climate change, and removing carbon and methane from the atmosphere creates value. Such a crypto coin would not replace the dollar, the euro, or the renminbi as the world's reserve currency. Such a claim would be, as we've seen and heard, absurd. But it would join the mix and would help keep green the color of money. Now, I used to be somewhat skeptical of remediation technologies, but I have come to think about it differently. I have come to understand in the last year that we will miss the 1.5C and 2C climate goals. Even the COVID-19 lockdowns, strict as they were, simply returned us to emissions levels experienced in 2006, when there were 6.5 billion people globally, rather than 7.5 billion. If such a strategy is implemented at scale, the one that I just proposed, we do have a chance of averting the 4C nightmare scenario that some analysts are predicting. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that this is not what the director of the IMF had in mind when she advocated a new Bretton Woods moment. But such a scenario could potentially really accelerate meeting global climate targets and could also improve global cooperation and governance, especially in terms of meeting UN Sustainable Development Goals. Let us hope that the United States does not retreat further into nationalism and isolation or tries to block progress on fighting climate change. There is real potential here to build a better world, and central banks and official institutions can play a positive role, as they did after World War II. We hope that this is the scenario that unfolds over the next two decades, as the alternative, which is a return to the beggar-the-neighbor policies of the interwar period, would be simply catastrophic, and would result in the loss of billions of lives, versus the 80 to 85 million people killed in the Second World War. Thank you for listening.